to episode 253 of Speaking of Mysteries. I'm Nancy Clare, and joining me on the podcast today is Seamus Award winner Lynn Hightower to talk about her new crime fiction novel, The Beautiful Risk. Although crime fiction with a soupçon of spooky, I would say. Um, welcome to the podcast, Lynn. Thank you. I'm very happy to be talking to you. Um, I have to thank the New York Times for giving me a term to talk about the beautiful risk. It's sort of a completely different application, but they referred to a polygon. And that's how I think of this story. It's, it's multifaceted. There's truth, love, justice, honor, and madness woven yes. together in a story that begins with a tragic event and moves forward with a woman's love for her dog, which I totally get. Good. So is that an accurate assessment also with a little bit of spooky? Oh, yes, that is a very accurate. You've nailed it. And just a little bit of spooky, you know, I wasn't sure I would get away with that. But my agent and editor, um, after they read the novel, said, we love that so much, we want a little more. So I thought, okay, you know, it's it's always a balanced issue, but just the right touch is very poignant, in my opinion. Well, you know, as the great Shea, as the bard said, there's more in heaven and earth that is dreamt of in our mean philosophy. And the idea of a metaphysical, especially, and we'll talk about this in a second, especially where you've set the story, uh, which is mostly in the Alps, which mm -hmm. has a, a spooky aspect, I should say. I think It does, because, you know, some of it takes place on um, Mount Blanc. And that's the most dangerous mountain in the world. Not because it's the tallest, it just takes more lives than any other mountain in the world. So let's talk about Junie Lagarde. Um, okay. She's a unique protagonist. And I like that she does not go along to get along. I, I, I as a woman <laughs> reader, I appreciate it. And I would think as, as a female writer, you probably enjoyed working with her. So, I loved working with Junie. She, I wish I was Junie. She's my hero. After the plane crash that took her husband's life, but which Leo, her dog, survived, um, her her single-minded purpose was to find Leo, yes. um, who is more than a pet. And I'd like you to talk a little bit about Juno, Leo, and their relationship, because he's right. not just a pet. Leo is also her hearing dog. Junie Lagarde has a cookie bite hearing loss. And I have a cookie bite hearing loss. And I decided I wanted to write about it. I've kept it a secret. It's hereditary. And I never have told any about it. And I thought, you know, I'm coming out of the closet. I'm going to give it to Junie. And I'm going to let people know what it's like because uh, Junie can hear at the top of the range of sound and at the bottom, but in the middle where most voices are, it's very hard for her to hear. And when you have hearing loss, sometimes it's scary. I cannot hear anybody coming up behind me, but I also have a hearing dog like Leo and her name is Leah. And um, she makes judgments. If she, something comes up behind me that she thinks is okay, she just nudges my leg. If she thinks it might be a risk, she's going to give me a sharp bark. Hey, pay attention. And it's not just that this dog 
is in your life to love you and protect you and look out for you. you there is such a strong emotional connection between a human and a dog. I was actually looking at the neurology of it this morning. I just ran across it in some research I was doing. And, and humans and dogs connect on an emotional level of the brain, you know, you know, that is more primitive, that before humans developed their prefrontal cortex so strongly, and they had a, a relationships with animals, there is just a one-on-one -on -one emotional connection between humans and animals. And it's just very strong with a, with a service dog or with any dog, honestly. Well, it certainly is with uh, Junie and Leo. It's, it's, yeah, uh, and we and I always say this uh, from the time I've spoken to Robert Craze and when I talked to Jeff Parker about their stories that featured dogs, nothing happens to the dog. The dog nothing does not happens. die. I I had uh, one of my um, one of the novelists I work with read <laughs> was reading and she emailed me and said I I have to stop reading now. Is the dog going to be okay? And I said you can always know in any Hightower fiction, the dog is going to be okay. Just just one of those things. I don't usually introduce spoilers, but there are people that will stop reading and ask. I, I witnessed it uh, with, uh, with Suspect when I went to the signing all those years ago uh, where a big burly guy came up to Robert Grace and said, I'm not going to read this unless you tell me that the dog's going to not die. <laughs> started laughing. Bob started laughing and said, and, and I will, if I, I will not read a book for the same reason. If I think the dog's going to die, I'm not going to read it. And I personally consider it a betrayal of the reader. They've given you their trust to tell them a good story and take them to a place where they want to go. That means the dog is always going to be okay. Thank you. And as I mentioned before, thank you for locating the story in the Alps. You know, I could almost smell the fresh air and the pastry. And as you mentioned, there is a sinister aspect to Mont Blanc. It's a dangerous mountain. And uh, I have to imagine that the on-the-ground research for this book was, was uh, nice. So you want to talk uh about that? I did. I had a wonderful time researching the book. You see, my husband was French and he grew up skiing around Chamonix and he, oh, you know, mountain biking, skiing, soccer, whatever was physical and dangerous he loved. Right. And I'm the type that's like, oh, have a good time. I'll be sitting here reading a book, drinking, uh, drinking. Yeah. <laughs> and um, and so when we would go to France, it was always the Oh, Mount Blanc has everything that terrifies me. I'm afraid of heights. I don't like the snow. There are a lot of lakes. I'm afraid I'll drown. I am so much fun on a vacation. And my husband just says, we will take you to the south of France. <laughs> but when I wrote this book, I just got so fascinated with Mount Blanc and the Alps. And so I went to Annecy, which is where I was located when I was doing research, which is a city that just absolutely holds my heart. I love it there. So, and, um, you know, I had this wonderful taxi driver who took me on all my research, right? And she was so good to me because, you know, we would go up to the mountain and she would say, ah, you do not dress enough warm. I have for you a coat. 
tortoise never dress enough warm. And she goes to her trunk and brings me this big puffer because I'd been in Annecy and it was 60 degrees. But you head up to Mount Blanc and uh, it's not 60 degrees. The temperature is going to drop. I had a wonderful time doing research. Well, I also thought of something that, that as, as you were describing it, uh, one thing readers do, I mean, writers, excuse me, do, is in their fiction, especially, they face their fears. It's a yes. great way to work through your own fears. Yes. And uh, I could, now knowing that uh, you have trepidation about heights and about lakes and <laughs> you know, I could just see that this is just a way to open yourself up as a writer uh, and process, although that word is a bit overused, but process the experience through your fiction, which is really great because it adds to the story, I think. It, it does. And it uh, you live it with your character. And I I went to that, that park, Merlet, where some of the story takes place and I hiked through a little bit. They gave me a very nice little map with all the pictures and they swore there would not be possible to get lost. And of course, within eight minutes, I was completely lost because I can get lost in my own backyard. Um, but I followed a family with little children because I figured that they would go back pretty quick and they wouldn't go anywhere scary. <laughs> I kept a distance, but I kept my eye on. I'm like, okay, I'll just, I'm sure eventually they're going to find their way back to the front or to a bathroom or somewhere where I can get, where I can get out of here. So yeah, I get lost a lot, but it, it's very therapeutic because as your character goes through things, you're just one step behind them going through, through it with them, living it with them. It, it's life-changing to write the novel. I could tell it's, it's, it's hard to talk about the spooky aspect without um, letting out a big spoiler. So I'm going to do my best to dance around it. Okay. And I'll try to behave because I'm very bad at blurting things out. <laughs> well, once again, you blurt it out, I can cut it. Junie loved her husband a great deal. And his loss was um, devastating. Uh, she's She's a young woman. And it was, it sort of pulled the ground out from under her, which I think is a reasonable sensation. Yes. She doesn't, as she goes through the books, uh, other characters say, yes, I was there with you when you went to the coroner's office. I was there with you when you spoke to the police. And she doesn't remember any of it. Mm -hmm. She's, this, this is her protective mechanism. So in a yeah. way she has to relive what happened relive the accident, learn about her reaction to the accident uh, after it happened. And during this time, some spooky stuff starts to happen. And, and it's almost as though she's being haunted, but not haunted. So talk a little bit about this element of spookiness, how uh, those who have passed away that we've been close to can be close to us, seem to be close to us, how we deal with that, how we how we manifest it. Right. Well, you know, th this book touches with that on two levels, okay? When you lose someone that you're so connected to and that you love so much, the world wants to tell you, that's it, it's over, they're gone, move on. And that's not true. What is true is that the connection that you have with them 
is still there. They are still present if you are open to it. And and you have to fight against what everybody tells you to do and realize that you don't have to not love them anymore. You don't have to say, we don't have this connection. You still have that connection. I wrote a piece for um, Psychology Today on grief uh, because Junie's loss was inspired by the loss of my own husband. And I was just astounded at what really happens when you grieve. And it's not at all what people think. It's very hard, but it's also it's also mysterious and beautiful. So there is that aspect for Junie. But then there's the aspect of when things can turn dark, particularly people around you. Um, and she deals with obsession on the part of someone who was obsessed with her husband and now is obsessed with her. That is, it is so that part is so creepy in all the right ways. I, when I use that word, people, it's it's not it's not something that should put you off. It is so sinister. It sort of permeates. It was sort of the type of thing where I started to read that, and it was at night, and I closed the book and read it the following day. Did you? I love hearing that. There are parts of this book. It's a, you know I'm going to say this is a great beach read because you want to be outside in the sunshine. I. You know, I love great beach read. Anytime you want to say that about one of my books, that's that's thrilling. But I know what you mean because I, I would be curled up in bed writing with my very big German shepherd, and I would be so glad to have my very big German shepherd and all the lights on in the house, every single one. Right. And you you are creating this. You you know that it's fiction, but you know, the fiction, I think fiction it, stays with us more than especially if you are a dedicated reader mm -hmm. fiction stays with you and 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 this brings us sort of the genre thing this is not a horror book this is not a stephen king-esque book this is a true crime fiction book yes uh judy working with uh people that she meets in in the alps are in is investigating her husband's death, which has been ruled an accident. And she's a pretty darn good investigator. And I I have a feeling that her hearing loss and her hearing challenge helps her. It does. It does. It gives her the ability to take up for herself, the ability to be uncompromising, and the ability to say no. No is one of the most beautiful words in the language, in my opinion, because it means that you put your hand up to things you do not want in your life, which opens up a beautiful space for what you do want in your life. And, and when Junie would tell people, listen, I have a hearing loss, I need you to do X, Y, and Z and not give me a hard time about X, Y, and Z, I had never done that but I started doing it and it was so great. I don't know what I was afraid would happen. I have this wonderful coffee shop, this Ukrainian coffee shop I love to go to and they always call out your order when it's ready. And I would never go get my order because I would never hear them. 
and I would be deep writing in the book. And uh, and they asked me about it, and I said, I, I was so embarrassed. I said, I have hearing loss. They're, I'm not going to hear you. If I forget, it's because I just forgot. And the terrible thing that happened is that all these college kids that work there, they just bring me my coffee. Wow, that's so awful. Wasn't that great? <laughs> I don't know how you live with it. I don't know. It's so terrible. <laughs> <laughs> it, it's it's I guess it's um letting yourself be vulnerable in the world which is not something I like to do but Junie also uses that uses is the wrong word her hearing loss makes other senses more acute and and yes. I know that's from people that I know who ha- who have hearing loss and and are blind sense of smell uh, uh, Junie is very, very good at reading body language. Because like yes. you said, along with along with uh, your dog, Leah, and her dog, Leo, might be able to cue her. But that's exactly what they're doing. They're reading micro expressions and they're reading um, they're reading the room. And that's something that even when she's really, really upset and she does get upset. Very. Rightfully so. She has a good read on what's going on without using the sense of hearing. That's that's a really good observation. And it, it also, this, uh, where she and both her dog are reading the room, you know, there's so much, uh, so many opinions about service dogs and how they work that, that don't ring true for me. Uh, my dog, I didn't even know there was such a thing as a hearing dog. And she realized I had hearing loss and she immediately started telling me things that I needed to know. And so I had a trainer that I was working with and she said, that's what she's doing. Let's just shape it a little bit. But to be honest with you, I'm not leading the way on that. She is. The other day we were out in the backyard and there was a man on the roof next door. He was just working. He wasn't a threat. And she was going after a ball and then she stops. She looks at him and then she locks eyes with me. She looks up at the roof. She looks back at me and I'm like, yeah, I got it. I see him. She's like, good. And then off to get her ball. That's not the kind of thing people get that a a good service dog connection has. They think they're little automatic robots. No dog is a robot. Every dog needs autonomy. Very good. It's excellent. Yes, they, they are their own persons. And they have, and they, and they need to have choices in their lives. Yes. That's another thing that when I was studying the, you know, the connection between dogs and humans and um, dogs have very big feelings. Don't kid yourself. They have really big feelings because that's how they process danger in the world. And my German shepherd has very big feelings and she's very tender hearted. And uh, I better keep that in mind. She won't be mean to me, but if she goes and lays it and puts her head down, I, I think this has happened only twice. And I've really hurt her feelings. I mean, I'll do anything to make it up to her and make it all better. <laughs> so we've touched on this before. The characters in The Beautiful Risk are driven by many forces. You know, mm-hmm. grief, d- grief and despair, which I think are completely different. Uh, yes, they are very different. Yes. Um, determination, love and revenge. So mm-hmm. you talked a little bit about your writing. So was it difficult to live and work in this sort of crucible of swirling emotions? Some of them are negative, some of them are positive. It was wonderful. I loved it. Uh, you know, I was going through my own grief at the time. And and what happened was 
Junie was a step ahead of me and I could walk along behind her. And she took me to this fabulous world. And she has such an incredible, some of the things that happen in this book are just jaw dropping to me. And, uh, you know, I would write her into a situation and I wouldn't know what was going to happen. And then when it did happen, it was thrilling. So no, it wasn't hard for me. I enjoyed every minute of it. And uh, you know, there's always a bit of grief when you finish a book that you really loved writing. And this one hit me pretty hard. Yeah, pushing that send button is really emotional. Yes. And, and, you know, there's a lot of like, you've, you've, you've poured yourself into this, yes. into these, into these characters. And um, you've loved them and lived with them and, and sometimes not loved them. Mm -hmm. been angry with them. And then you send it out in the world where they're going to be judged. <laughs> they're going to be judged and you're not spending your day with them. Right. So, so that's I'm, very hard. So I always have a new book on the go on the plan. And so I can jump right in. And, you know, for me, every book is a love affair. So I'm ready for the next. <laughs> As we discussed, there is this sort of metaphysical element that's a little bit spooky, but I found a little bit comforting as well. And it got me to thinking that that Junie, as you said, is is doing her best to heal, and she's she's taking these steps physically and metaphorically. Yes. Um, but that that one of the things that came away with me as I finished the book was how how love is magical. And when I say that, I mean your book is not a Harry Potter book. No. And you know, it should sell like a Harry Potter book, but it's not yes. Harry Potter. Yes. Let's go with that thought. <laughs> but but the magicalness of love is is something that you you get right into in this book and I think I think that's uh, I think it's real. If I had had people tell me about that after my husband died, it would have brought me great comfort. And so I wanted to write about it so people would know that there is Grief is hard. It's terrible, but there are gifts, and um, it's a blistering clarity where you look at the world and you have a perspective that's pretty hard. This good, this bad, and that's all you're going to allow in your life. And then magical things do happen. I was sitting on the porch swing after my husband died, and I was missing him, and I was crying, and I said, "I just wish you could give me flowers again." And then. A geranium falls <clears throat> from the flower basket over the top of my head into my lap. And I laughed and I said, well, I don't know where you are, but thank you. It would have been insane not to know that that was him giving me flowers. Don't turn your back when you have just that moment of magical connection. Just grab hold of it. It's rare. It's beautiful. We live in a world that will tell you it's not real. It isn't happening. I'm telling you it's real. And yet, this book is not a mushy romance oh, no. kind of book. And and because it involves eco-terrorism. Yes, it does. And I find, you know, the, the ecological movement is so, especially right now, as we're all suffering from coast to coast. I'm on the West Coast. You're on the East Coast. We're all just projectile sweating. It's so hot. Yes. Yeah. Um the climate situation in the world is dire. So in your book, uh, some of the 
less than good elements, the evil elements, the, evil the, bad, the bad guys. Let's, yeah. let's use that, that technical, that technical term. Villains. Yes. Um, motivates some of them. And they, and part of it is to thwart Junie. Her husband was involved in assessing uh, safety and, and it often clashed a little bit with, uh, with the echo terrorists mm-hmm. thought was the right thing. So this is, this is a gritty story. And yes. one of the questions I wanted to ask about that was, can you talk about how people can go too far, even if the case is worthy? You know, oh, yes. I love, I love that you get my terrorist because I studied terrorism and how I was always, how do people get to that place where they will do something so heinous? And I believe it's a form of grief. Um, you know, there's two levels when a terrorist event happens in a place outside groups will come, but they're going to be looking for somebody local because they'll know the area and they'll already blend in. And they're going to look, they're going to be looking through the dark web for somebody who's in pain, somebody who's been hurt. And you know that pain and grief turn to anger. They turn to despair and then they become revenge. And um, my character who goes through this, I felt bad for her. What happened to her was unbearable on so many levels. And my editor had to keep reminding me, Lynn, this is a villain. Remember that. And I'm like, okay, yeah, I get that. And and I and and there is no excuse for what she did. But I knew her heart. Well, I think, but that introduces something about uh the current state of crime fiction, which I think has never been better. And the ambiguity that's built in to the stories and the yes. characters. Yes. So yes. yes, your villain is very, very does very, very bad things. But was she always a very, very bad person? You know, if she's mm-hmm. suffering from sociopathy now, was she always suffering from sociopathy? You know, that you have to read the book to yeah. find that's, that. That's out. a that's a good question how she got to this place is genuinely tragic. And you could see two paths for her, one very dark and one very beautiful. And she took the dark way. She just stepped off on sliding doors. Yes, exactly. Which I love. And another thing I found when I was doing the research on, on climate dream and emissions was how much, vile greenwashing there is oh, where yeah. big corporations and governments will say we're going to have this goal for emissions we're going to cut them back this much and there's this big pot of money to give to people who will do this right and they all sign up and they all get paid and they just go about business as usual and uh i found the most extraordinary ngo which was clearly a spy NGO that dealt with this kind of thing. So it gave me the inspiration for Madame Renard, who is a French woman who runs a very powerful climate NGO. And 
she is not going to go through the usual channels. She is going to go through back channels. She is utterly ruthless. And she can bring corporations and governments to their knees. And so she just does things to hold them accountable for the things they say they're going to do. And she will have the carrot and she will have a very big stick. She's like a good, bad guy. She's a good, bad guy. I mean, she does... She's a very bad, she does very bad things. I I absolutely kind of love her for the things that she accomplishes. And, but she and Junie uh, immediately dislike each other from the second they meet. And I had a lot of fun with that because they both have something the other one needs. They have to work together. They will not trust each other and for very good reasons. Um, and it was a dynamic that I loved. Well, you touched on this earlier that uh, one of the ways you work is to make sure you've got something else to embrace as soon as you let one go. So would you like to talk about what you're working on now? You mentioned before we started recording that you're about to turn it in. I take it that's a first draft that you're about to turn in. Yes, I'm I'm turning it into my editor on Monday. Wish me luck. (laughs) A little bit of work to do. Always. (laughs) Well, actually, this is, um, and I am, by the way, planning to do, uh, well, I'm hoping to do a sequel with Junie Lagarde because I have a really good idea. You anticipated my next question. but Yes, absolutely. The one I'm turning in now is called The Darkness in Provence, and um, it is a sequel to, it's a medical thriller with a lot of spooky And what I have is a neurosurgeon who runs into people who are under spiritual attack. You know, they think they're possessed. They think there's something coming after them. And I did a lot of research. And I mean, he's a total science guy. All right. And what he finds out and and what it, what, you know, if you look up possession in the DSM, it's under research under disassociation and what they say is we've got no idea what's going on basically they say we got no idea what's going on i talked to a couple of psychiatrists and said would you interpret that for me and what they said is whatever is happening to these people is coming from without not from within as a mental illness so that fascinated me and i in this book i do not want to explore it through the prism of religion. It's purely through the prism of quantum spirituality, quantum biology, quantum entanglement. And what I and I based it on events in a real place that's quite terrifying. And um it just seemed to be infested with something. Nobody can live there very long. And they go after it through science. And what I found is that made it a whole lot scarier to me. Because <laughs> truth, truth is scarier than fiction. It is. If you can more often can, than not. If you come up with something going on through the prism of physics, that puts a whole nother spin on it. Um, so that brings me to what is usually my concluding question. You yes. are a writer who has done series. I always think it's interesting when a a writer steps away from series to do a standalone, that there's something sort of intrinsic uh, 
they are people that do series are usually really comfortable with the characters. They like their main characters. Yes. And they want to visit with their main characters again. They want to go on another story, another adventure right. with their main characters. Right. So are, hopefully we're going to see Junie again. Oh, I absolutely have already started working on the next Junie novel. Um, and, you know, every time I love doing series because you've got the character and you've got the world, which means you can go somewhere even more interesting and in more depth than you did in the other one, because you know all of these things and you know them so well. And I mean, with climate change as it is, and, and, and I'm interested in, in the effect on like just a person to person level, right? Um, yeah, Junie's got a lot ahead of her in another book. And I'm, I'm quite excited about being back in that world again. Yeah. Well, I'm hoping that you will, if, should we all be spared that you would be willing to come back on the podcast and talk about either your medical thriller that's coming up? I would be delighted to come back and talk on your podcast about the one coming up and the one after whenever you want me, I'll be here. Well, thanks again, Lynn, for talking to me this morning and uh, good luck with this book. It is very, very different in a really good way. So thank you for that. Thank you.